From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Many Central New Yorkers are familiar with ticks and the risk that they may carry the bacteria that causes Lyme disease. But there's another tick-borne illness of concern now. Here to help us understand anaplasmosis is Dr. Chris Paulino. He's an assistant professor of medicine and of microbiology and immunology. Thank you for making time once again for HealthLink on Air, Dr. Paulino. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. Now, earlier this summer, the state health department reported seven confirmed cases of anaplasmosis in Onondaga County, which they said was a marked increase in cases over the past five years. What do you think is driving this increase? So, you know, over the past couple of years, we've seen increased clinical cases kind of south of the city as well. Um, you know, Binghamton has had a significant increase in their, their hospitalizations from what I understand from my colleagues down there. I think it's really a matter of um, the the fact that some of our winters recently have been less severe, um, less cold, less long overall. So I think that there's an increased number of ticks that are overwintering and surviving the winter months, as well as the rodents that can transmit some of these pathogens. And I think that's kind of where we're seeing this. Well, can you tell us what anaplasmosis is? And I'm not even sure I'm saying that correctly. Yeah, you you got it. Um, so anaplasmosis is an intracellular bac bacterial infection. So um, basically with anaplasmosis, it'll actually infect some of your white blood cells, you know, the cells that are, are actually supposed to be protecting you from infection. Um, and, and it can get quite severe if, uh, if people aren't caught early on. So do the deer ticks carry this same bacteria? Yeah, deer ticks are uh, like kind of a, a Swiss army knife of, of ticks in a sense because of the number of pathogens that can be carried by it. Um, you know, we, we talk about Lyme disease, we're talking about anaplasmosis, but there's several others as well. Um, so it's, it's, it's one of those things where it, you know, prevention of those tick bites carries a lot of weight because you're not only are you preventing Lyme, but you're preventing some of these other, you know, similarly nasty infections as well. So, if I hear you correctly, the, the deer ticks can carry more than one of these types of bacteria. A person who gets bit by that deer tick might get both at once. There's a possibility, yeah. I, I don't see a lot of clinical um, co-infections. Um, they're probably about 5% or less clinically. Um, it's something we always try to think about when we're dealing with tick bites and, you know, cases of Lyme that may not be responding to therapy. Um, the good news is when it comes to anaplasma, you know, the, the treatment, um, you know, specifically doxycycline, which we use for Lyme disease is, is the, you know, the magic bullet for anaplasmosis. It's kind of the, the go-to drug for that. Now, is there a time of year when ticks carrying anaplasmosis are most likely to be biting? So, you know, the, the ticks are going to be active really as soon as the, the snow melts all the way up until when the snow starts to fly again. So, you know, you can imagine our tick season can be anywhere from like March through December in many cases. Um, you know, there are different types of ticks that are uh, or different stages of the tick, the deer tick that are going to be active at certain times of the year. So generally speaking, um, the nymphs, the smaller ticks are going to be more active in the spring and early summer. And then throughout the summer and then into the fall, you're going to see some of the adult ticks that are going to start to be more active. The, those nymphs are, are really the more dangerous of the, the ticks because we're, we're going to have these smaller ticks. They're going to be harder to identify. They're going to be harder to detect on a person. 
And because of that, they can stay attached longer and have an increased risk of transmitting something like Lyme or anaplasmosis. Well, let's talk about the symptoms. How soon would symptoms appear and, and what are the most common symptoms? Yeah, so as you know, in comparison to like Lyme disease where symptoms may not really present, you may not have a rash for several weeks after a bite, some cases anaplasmosis can present in, in days. Um, you know, I tell people about five days, give or take, up to maybe two weeks is when you'd start to see some symptoms associated with it. Um, we, we talk about anaplasma having a typical tick-borne presentation. Um, so tick-borne diseases oftentimes will present with high fevers, headaches, general muscle aches. Um, anaplasma has a specific tendency to cause a lot of upset stomach. So people can have poor appetite, nausea, some vomiting, and in some cases can also have some diarrhea as well. Um, you know, a lot of symptoms that unfortunately kind of mimic what we see with some of the COVID cases. Does anaplasma do lasting damage to the body? No, um, it, you know, it's, it's generally one of these infections where if you get it, it kind of hits hard up front and can be very, uh, very severe. People can go into multi-organ failure and there have been deaths. Um, but generally speaking, once you treat, um, you know, there's, there's no significant risk of kind of chronic relapse or chronic symptoms like we see with some of our Lyme cases. Now, in immunocompromised individuals, there may be a potential risk. Um, I've read of some, some uh, relapsed cases of ehrlichiosis, which is kind of a, uh, a very close relative to anaplasmosis that can occur in somebody who's going through like leukemia treatment and chemotherapy. Uh, but generally speaking, once you're treated with anaplasma, you, you're not gonna have persistent issues. How uh, is it diagnosed? Is there a is there a blood test for it? Yeah, there's actually a couple of blood tests, and you know you can potentially see evidence of the infection on a blood smear. It's not a common way that we do the testing, uh, but it is a possibility. Um, the probably the more common ways to do this would be to either draw a serologic test where you're looking at antibody responses to anaplasma, which much like any serologic test, Lyme included, early in the course of the disease, you may not have the antibodies there. So a lot of times I'll have people come back to the clinic four to six weeks later to do that confirmatory test. And you'll see they'll go from zero antibodies to major titers uh, that are quite high, showing that we, we did indeed have anaplasmosis. Now, early in the course of the infection, you can actually do a PCR test on the blood where you're looking uh, specifically for the DNA of the bacteria. So I oftentimes will order both. And because, you know, early on, especially if somebody has been put on doxycycline early, their, their, their PCR may actually become negative and you may not, you may not pick up the diagnosis. So I'll, I'll order both of those tests in many cases. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Assistant Professor Dr. Chris Paulino about anaplasmosis. It's a disease that's transmitted to humans through the bite of a tick. Now, you already mentioned that the recommended treatment is doxycycline. Um, that's, a, I guess, a common antibiotic. Mm -hmm. What if someone is not treated for this? Will the body fight this off on its own, or do, do people need treatment? Generally speaking, you're going to need treatment. This isn't something that's going to hide out. Um, you know, the cases, um, like I said, they present very quickly after the tick bite. 
they come on very, uh, very intensely. Uh, fever is 103, 104 degrees in an adult, which you know you can imagine is not not pleasant. Um, headaches are pretty severe, um, you know. And if if they are not treated and you're not thinking about it, people can end up in the ICU. And and as I said, you can have some deaths um, in about 10% of patients if they're not treated promptly. Well, I'd like to ask you a little more about prevention. What do you tell people is the best way to avoid tick bites without, I mean, people want to get out and enjoy, you know, central New York and go on hikes, but how can they do that um, and avoid the ticks? Yeah, so, you know, you just have to, you have to do your due diligence. Um, if you're going to go somewhere where there's potentially ticks uh, around, so hiking, uh, going to parks, anywhere where there's high grass, I, I joke with some of my patients, if you're not a great golfer and you're spending a lot of time in the rough, you need to use some bug spray of some sort. Um, generally speaking, I recommend using something on the skin. Um, I am a big fan of DEET products. I've always, um, I've always uh, done well with those. I think they have um, you know, the most data behind them from a tick and mosquito repellent perspective. Um, but I also think that um, you know it's it's fairly well tolerated for most people. Now, if for some reason somebody doesn't like DEET or they have a sensitivity to DEET, picaridin is a close second for me. Um, there are a couple brands that are out there that do have picaridin-containing products, and I usually like to do 20% picaridin or maybe 25% to 35% DEET. Um, as far as other topicals, there are others that are out there. They may be less effective, and you may need to reapply them more frequently. Um, oil of eucalyptus is is an option for somebody who wants more of a, an organic approach. Um, but again, you just need to make sure that you're uh, you're applying regularly, um, you know, reapplying when you're outside for a prolonged period of time. And then after you're done doing what you're doing, you want to make sure you do tick checks. It's really important. Um, you know, my my children spent you know an hour outdoors in Massachusetts couple months back and we found four ticks on them within the hour that they were outside. So you need to really be uh, thinking about that. And then you also want to try to take a shower within about two hours of coming in and launder your clothing and put it on high heat in the dryer. Um, it should kill any residual ticks that may be on there. And, uh, you know, it will help kind of uh, wash away any ticks that have not attached yet. The only other thing I would mention um, for somebody who does a lot of work outside or hiking using permethrin on the clothing. Um, it's a clothing spray you can use, or you can actually buy clothing that have permethrin um, uh, products embedded in them already. Um, that's actually been shown in a randomized clinical trial recently to decrease the number of tick bites pretty substantially. Um, so I use that on any kind of yard work clothing that I have and uh, anything I'm gonna use for hiking purposes. If you do find ticks on your body, what do you advise about tick removal? So, you know, there's a lot of kind of uh, approaches to tick removal that I think uh, may actually do more harm than good. I generally uh, tell people to get uh, fine uh, needle nose tweezers, grab the tick at the base uh, next to the skin and pull straight out. Um, if you try to burn the tick off, if you kind of cover it with Vaseline, it may get the tick to come out. Um, but you're also irritating the tick and there's a greater chance it's going to regurgitate more sal uh, salivary proteins and, and other potential pathogens and things into your skin. Um, so it's probably not a great idea. Um, take the tick off as soon as you find it. Um, the longer the tick is attached, the more likely something could potentially be transmitted. And then I would talk to your, your primary care provider. Um, you know, there are some 
prophylactic regimens that you can use. Um, you know, doxycycline has been shown to decrease the risk of Lyme transmission. Um, so that's something that you can uh, reach out to your primary care about. Should you save the tick? Um, you know, there. This is a controversial com uh, um, question because, you know, if you look at the guidelines, they don't really recommend, um, you know, testing the tick necessarily. But um, I do recommend that patients uh, send any ticks that they have into our lab here at Upstate, Dr. Tangamani's lab. Um, and, and the reason for it is he gets that data and he can compile it and provide providers like myself with some kind of real-time information as to what the trends look like. So I knew over the past two years that our anaplasma and babesiosis rates in the ticks were increasing. So seeing an increase in anaplasmosis clinically is not shocking to me. Um, the other thing is if you have the tick sent in, you potentially can get some data regarding the, the pathogens that may or may not be in there. And um, in some cases it can provide some peace of mind um, if you're worried that you might have gotten bit by something that had an infection in it. Um, and it also provides your, your providers with at least a little bit of a hint as to what may be going on if, uh, if, you're, if you take tested positive for anaplasma or Lyme disease or something like that. I want to let listeners know they can find out more about that tick submission at a website, nytics.org. Right. Um, and before we wrap up, are there other tick-borne diseases to be aware of in central New York at this point? Yeah. So actually, uh, looking at Dr. Tangamani's lab um, data, there there seems to be more ticks with babesiosis, which is a parasite that can be found inside the ticks. Um, it presents very similarly to malaria in a sense um, because it invades the red blood cells. Um, we have not seen a ton of Babesia cases, and I think that may be partly due to the, the need for it to be attached a bit longer. So if people are identifying that they have a tick bite, they're able to pull it off before there's a transmission. Um, it's interesting that we have fewer ticks with anaplasma that I've seen uh, per his data, uh, but more cases, and I'm wondering if it has something to do with that. Um, there are other tick-borne diseases. Um, ehrlichiosis can be spread by... Uh, some species by deer ticks, others by uh, uh, other ticks like the Lone Star tick, which we're starting to see in New York. Um, and then there are other kind of rare um, uh, pathogens like Powassan virus, which is a devastating neurologic infection, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, and the dog tick. Um, these are all potentially things you can see, um, but just uh, luckily for us, not super common at this point. Well, this has been very informative. Thank you so much to Dr. Chris Paulino. He's an assistant professor of medicine and of microbiology and immunology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air.